Mark chapter 10 tonight, the gospel of Mark chapter 10. We are moving through the gospel of Mark at breakneck speed if you compare it to how long it took us to get through Galatians. Um, <laughs> and uh, you remember that we talked a couple of weeks ago about the metrics of a childlike faith. How do you know if your faith is childlike, which is what Christ prescribes for us? Well, first of all, it's trusting, and then it's receptive, and it is completely and totally dependent on Christ alone. And that's a childlike faith. Then last, last week we talked about when mammon gets a foothold. When mammon gets a foothold, how do you know that the pursuit of wealth and all that comes with it has gotten a foothold in your life? Well, when mammon gains a foothold, work overshadows grace. Um, when mammon gets a foothold, benefits overrule service. Pride overrides reality, and the present overtakes the future. Now we find ourselves in Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse number 32. If that picture looks familiar to you, that was the background for our, um, for our theme a couple years ago, to be like Jesus. Um, and, uh, and of course, the, the picture is a, a picture of, of service, of ministering. And that's what we'll talk about tonight. Mark chapter 10 and verse number 32. Mark 10, verse number 32. And they were in the way going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus went before them, and they were amazed, and as they followed, they were afraid. And he took again the twelve and began to tell them what things should happen unto him, saying, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man shall be delivered unto the chief priests and unto the scribes, and they shall condemn him to death and shall deliver him to the Gentiles, and they shall mock him and shall scourge him and shall spit upon him and shall kill him. And the third day... He shall rise again. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came unto him, come unto him, saying, Master, we would that thou shouldest do for us whatsoever we shall desire. You ever had your kids come to you and say, Mom, I want you to agree to do this before they tell you what it is? That's exactly what they did. And he said unto them, verse 36, What would you that I should do for you? They said unto him, Grant unto us that we may sit, one on thy right hand and the other on thy left hand, in thy glory. But Jesus said unto them, You know not what ye ask. Can you drink of the cup that I drink of, and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? I said unto him, We can. And Jesus said unto them, You shall indeed drink of the cup that I drink of, and with the baptism that I am baptized with all shall ye be baptized. But to sit on my right hand and on my left hand is not mine to give, but it shall be given to them for whom it is prepared. When the ten heard it, they began to be much displeased with James and John. But Jesus called them to him and saith unto them, Ye know that they which are accounted to rule over the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and their great ones exercise authority upon them. But so shall it not be among you. But whosoever will be great among you shall be your minister. And whosoever of you will be the chiefest shall be servant of all. Now I want you to pay close attention to verse 45 because if there were a key verse of the entire gospel of Mark, a key verse, a theme verse of the entire gospel, it's verse 45 of chapter 10. For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. Let me set, well, let me pray. Father, I sure do need your help. 
I want to cover this in the way that most pleases you, and I certainly want to rightly divide your word of truth, so I pray to that end, Lord. Speak to our hearts. You, you've given us a really great spirit tonight, and I just pray, Lord, that I'd not do anything to, squ- to, to, to quench that, Lord. Speak to us in an unusual way, we pray, and do something in our hearts and lives. And may Christ be lifted up in it. For it's in his name we ask these things. Amen. Jesus, I want to set the stage a little bit. He's leading a crowd towards Jerusalem. And from this crowd, he separates his 12 disciples. The 12 begin the trip in amazement and awe at all that Christ has done and taught and did. But you see, as they go along, that amazement soon gives way to fear. You see, along the way, I don't know of a better way to say this, but it doesn't seem like the best way. Jesus' mood darkens. It gets heavy. And it seems like that as that happens with him, it happens with the apostles too. Have you ever been around somebody that as their spirit kind of gets, gets heavier, it, it impacts you? I think that's what's happening here. Why did this shadow creep over the Savior? I'll tell you why. Because he knows that when he enters the Jerusalem region this time, he's not coming back without seeing the cross. This will be the last time that he enters this region before his death. The closest thing I can come to that would be uh, my grandmother when uh, they made the decision to move her in with my aunt. She had said that she didn't want to do that because she knew that when that happened, she'd never come out. A heaviness came over her. Now, it was necessary. It was the right thing to do, but she entered into hospice care and and palliative care and all that, and she knew when she went into that home, she'd never leave. I would imagine that would bring a bit of a pall over you, don't you think? And so Jesus is now moving towards towards this, this, this pinnacle of why he came. The full weight of what is about to transpire begins to pile on him. Could it be that maybe even now Jesus is beginning to feel the weight of my sin, of my wickedness, of my shortcomings? Could even now he who knew no sin be becoming sin for me, for you? He ponders the magnitude of our shame One would wonder what's going through his mind as he trudges forward to his own sacrifice. Uh, One commentator suggested that perhaps his mind was thinking about what's called the servant songs that are found in Isaiah 42 through 53. Those songs that speak of Messiah and particularly of his sufferings. Maybe those were going through his mind. Maybe he's thinking of Isaiah 50 verse 5, The Lord God hath opened mine ear. And I was not rebellious, neither turned away back. I gave my back to the smiters and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. Maybe he's thinking about Isaiah 52, verse 14, and many were astonished at thee. His visage was so marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. Perhaps he's thinking about Isaiah 53, beginning in verse number 3. 
Maybe he's personalized it as he should. I'll be despised and rejected of men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And they'll hid, as it were, their faces from me. I'll be stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But I'll be wounded for their transgressions. I'll be bruised for their iniquities. The chastisement of their peace will be upon me, and with my stripes they'll be healed. You see, all they like sheep have gone astray. They've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on me the iniquity of them all. Jesus is here demonstrating what I think is the grandest form of courage. You see, it's one thing to take a leap of bravery into a a deadly situation. God forbid if somebody were to come in here and, 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 and pose an imminent danger to somebody here that I love, which is all of you. I'd like to think that I'd have the courage to jump, run and jump and shield somebody from that day. You don't have time to think. You just do what's right. But that's not the highest form of courage, high though it may be. The highest form of courage is when you have time to consider what you're facing. When you have time to consider a way of getting out of it and yet still move toward it. Jesus has had 33 years to meditate on what's coming. And at no point, at at no moment did Jesus for a second consider walking away from it. He had any number of opportunities to turn aside, yet he still marches up to Jerusalem, which, by the way, takes us back to Isaiah 50, verse 7. Listen to what it says. For the Lord God will help me, therefore shall I not be confounded. Therefore have I set my face like a flint, and I know I shall not be ashamed. So this is a heavy time. It's a dark time. Jesus is already heavy laden with the the shadow of the cross. And yet, it's in this moment that he decides to teach his disciples something. He would have been justified to just stay quiet and meditate on things himself. But instead, he says, no, I'm going to use this time to teach them something. Because as wonderful as it is that he would leave behind his message, he needed to make sure he was leaving behind well-prepared messengers. And so it was at this time that he took the opportunity to teach those who would be his servants. Could we use the word that the Bible uses, his ministers? And he'll impart upon them Three ministry fundamentals. Three ministry fundamentals. Okay? Ministry fundamental number one. If if you're going to be an effective minister for Jesus Christ, here's the first fundamental you got to get nailed down. You ready? Pay attention to your master. 
Isn't it amazing how many people who claim to be servants of Christ don't actually pay attention to what he says? Pay attention to your master. Look at verse 32. And they were in the way going up to Jerusalem. Jesus went before them, and they were amazed, and as they followed, they were afraid. And he took again the twelve and began to tell them what things should happen unto him. Now, this is not the first time that Jesus told them what was going to happen. In fact, twice before, he's already told them what's going to happen. Mark chapter 8, verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and of the chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. What was the result of that? Peter rebuked him. Then in Mark chapter 9, also in verse 31, for he taught his disciples and said unto them, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of men and they shall kill him. And after that he is killed, he shall rise the third day. What was the result of that? The Bible says they didn't understand. And then they turned to arguing over which one of them would be the greatest. So twice already, he has very clearly told them that I'm going to be delivered into their hands. I'm going to be killed and I'm going to rise again. And nobody got it now the third time but this time Jesus includes more information and he's more graphic look at what he says compared to the first two times he says he he took again the twelve began to tell them what things should happen unto him saying behold we go up to Jerusalem and the son of man shall be delivered unto the chief priests and unto the scribes and they shall condemn him to death And shall deliver him to the Gentiles, and they shall mock him, and shall scourge him, and shall spit upon him, and shall kill him. And the third day he shall rise again. Would you allow me to take a quick sidebar, just something that's on the side for free? Jesus uses a literary tool here. I'm going to to test y'all's knowledge here. He uses something called a polycentodon. Anybody know what that is? A polycentodon? It's when, he, it's, it's, it's when he uses a successive series of conjunctions, in this case the word and. Let's read it. Let, let me show you what I'm talking about here. He says, uh, uh, verse 33, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man shall be delivered unto the chief priest, and unto the scribes. And they shall condemn him to death, and shall deliver him to the Gentiles, and they shall mock him, and shall scourge him, and shall spit upon him, and shall kill him. What's that do? Well, first of all, it's it's, it's meant to produce two effects. First of all, it builds emotion. He's trying to get them to see how bad this is going to be. And this is going to happen, 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 and this is going to happen. It builds emotion. But let me tell you what else he's doing. He's also bringing encouragement. Because does it sound like he's pretty sure these things are going to happen? That this, this is a given. This is going to happen. Now let's read what he says. What in the world's encouraging about this? Watch. And the Son of Man shall be delivered, and they shall condemn him, and shall deliver him to the Gentiles. They shall mock him, and shall scourge him, and shall spit upon him, and shall kill him, and the third day he'll rise again. Just as sure as all these other things are going to happen, this is going to happen too. Yes, I'm going to be scourged. Yes, I'm going to be spat upon. Yes, I'm going to be killed. And I'm going to rise again. 
So it's meant to encourage too. See, Jesus wants them to pay attention and really hear what he's saying about his mission. What's the result? They just didn't get it. Luke 18, in his account of this, he says this in verse 34. And they understood none of these things. And this saying was hid from them, neither knew they the things which were spoken. In fact, right now, at this point, there seems to be only one person in all the world that gets it. And that's Mary of Bethany. She seems to be the only one. Because she anointed his body to his death. She got it. You know why? She'd been paying attention to her master. She'd been listening. Brother Branson, you know what I found? Many of my problems, many of my shortcomings as a Christian is just because I didn't pay attention to God's word. I just didn't pay attention. A guy named William Barclay said this. He said, the human mind has an amazing faculty for rejecting what it does not want to see. You see, the disciples didn't want to see a crucified Messiah. They wanted to see a conquering one. And so they just refused to see what they didn't want to see. If you're going to be a minister for Christ, you have to pay attention to the master. You have to. Number two. If you're going to be a minister, this is a fundamental. You've got to pay attention to the master, and you have to properly, ad- and you have to properly appreciate his message. You have to properly appreciate his message. Verse 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, come unto him, saying, Master, we would that thou shouldest do for us whatsoever we shall desire. And he said unto them, What would you that I should do for you? And they said unto him, Grant unto us that we may sit, one on thy right hand, the other on thy left hand, in thy glory. Now, let's stop there. It's super easy to judge James and John here, isn't it? It is super easy for us to look at them and say, What is the matter with them? The mood is heavy. Jesus has just said this about his death and his resurrection. And then they ask this, What is wrong with them? You ever done that? You ever looked at another Christian and said, what are they thinking? What is wrong with those people? They're thinking the same thing about you. They are. But, but can I give you a couple of things that might be mitigating factors here? I'm not saying what they did was right, but, but let's consider the whole picture, okay? Let's at least give them credit that it displayed faith in his Messiahship. They understood that he would rule, and they understood that he would have people rule with him. At least they got that. It showed that they were paying attention to his teaching regarding his reign. Because what did he say just before this in Matthew nineteen twenty eight? Jesus said unto them, Verily I say unto you, that ye which have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man shall sit in the throne of his glory, ye shall also sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So they've already understood they're going to get to sit on a throne. All they're asking is to be next to him. Okay. Here's the third mitigating factor. They only ask because mama told them to. What? Matthew's account of this in Matthew 20, listen to what it says. Then came to him the mother of Zebedee's children with her sons. 
worshiping him and desiring a certain thing of him. And he said unto her, What wilt thou? She saith unto him, Grant that these my two sons may sit, the one on thy right hand, the other on the left, in thy kingdom. How many of y'all know that mama can be a powerful influence for you to do things? Before my mama took the direction she did in her health, she was a world-class guilter. You coming by to see me? Well, Mom, if I can. Okay. Just never know what could happen. I know, Mama. My grass sure is getting tall. Yeah, I just, you know, I'm just not able to. I know, Mom, you're not. I know. She was good at it. And she got pretty much what she wanted, you know. So mama, mama was pushing these boys, and they, let's, let's, give them, let's give them that. Hey, by the way, parents, be careful what you encourage in your children. I've met some guys that I was pretty convinced that mama called them to preach, but God didn't. Be careful. People ask me all the time, do you, do you, uh, you want to ask her to be a preacher? No, I don't. I'm not trying to sound spiritual, but my heart before God, I want him to be whatever God's called him to be. This isn't a family business. Now, if God calls him to be a, a preacher, I would love that. And I would, I, would even, I would love the opportunity to serve with him. That's problematic sometimes. But I'm not calling him to anything. God is. Now, if God wants to call him to be a major league pitcher, I'd be okay with that. If God wants to call him to be president of the United States, I'd be okay with that. Well, then certainly you want your daughter to marry a preacher. No, I do not. Ask my wife how fun that is sometimes. <laughs> I want whatever God's will is for him. So, so mama, mama had a hand in this. So that's a mitigating factor. But you know what else? They thought, wrongly so, but they thought their question was a spirit-driven one. Sometimes you can ask for the wrong thing with the right motive. Did you know that? What does it say in Matthew 20, verse 21? Then came to him the mother of Zebedee's children with her sons, worshiping him. They weren't trying to be carnal. They were wrong, but they weren't trying to be carnal. So, so we've got these mitigating factors. So what was the problem with their request? Here's the problem. Number one, it was poorly timed. The Bible talks about words in due season. Sometimes you can say the right thing at the wrong time. Sometimes our timing is everything, you know? Sometimes our timing is everything. It was poorly timed. You know what else? It had a prideful tenor. Now, what do I mean by that? the mindset behind what they're asking was laced with pride. Listen to what he says, verse 38. But Jesus said unto them, you know not what you ask. Can you drink of the cup that I drink of and be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with? They said unto him, we can. Hmm. As we've been working with Foster more than once, We've asked him the question, are you sure you want to get into this? <laughs> By the way, couldn't be more happy with his humble disposition. 
I mean, he's a goofy college kid. But other than that, I couldn't be happier with his humble disposition. All right. You sure? Jesus says, you think you can do this? Now, notice what he asked him. First of all, are you able to drink the cup? Now, there's a specific cup that Jesus is drinking that they can't drink. But he's speaking more broadly than that. What's the cup? The cup is whatever God has provided for your life that goes inside. You drink from a cup, don't you? And that's whatever God has for your life that's going to work on the inside. Baptism is when you're immersed into whatever God has for the outside of your life. So what Jesus is asking, are you prepared for what you're going to have to go through on the inside, and are you prepared for what you're going to have to go through on the outside? They say, we, yeah, we, we can handle that. By the way, he said they would, and they did. James was the first martyr. Herod killed him with the sword. And John, though we don't know that John was technically martyred, he was persecuted his whole life. Tradition says he was boiled unsuccessfully in oil. I don't even know what that means. Is unsuccessful a good thing or a bad thing? I'm thinking being boiled in oil is bad no matter how you do it. They threw him on the Isle of Patmos when he's 90 years old on a, in a work camp. And if that wasn't enough, they made him come back and pastor. So he suffered. I'm kidding. Apparently not in a funny way. And I pay some of you people to laugh, and you still didn't do it. It it was a prideful tenor. It was poorly timed. And can I tell you, it was just pitifully tone deaf. Now, what do I mean by that? Have you ever had somebody just said something, and it just made you cringe? It wasn't anybody in here. It wasn't anybody in here. But in one of the miscarriages that we went through, somebody, and it wasn't anybody in here, somebody said, well, the Lord just knew there was something wrong with that baby. Can I tell you, that's pitifully tone deaf. There's nothing redeeming about that. There's nothing you can say that makes that okay, that makes that better. It was the wrong thing said at the wrong time, and there was nothing redeemable about it, nothing possible about it. And you got to think that when they said this, maybe Jesus went, you sons of thunder, what is wrong with you? Poorly timed, prideful in your tenor, and that was pitifully tone deaf. That's just not the thing to say right now. If for no other reason, you got 10 other disciples that are ready to rip your head off now. I got, I got one for you. Maybe this is the one I should have used. That other one was kind of heavy. <laughs> I wasn't there, thank the Lord. I wasn't there, but in my former state of Alabama, there was a funeral that was held for a lady. And the family asked the minister with which they were familiar to do the funeral. That happens to me frequently. I'm I'm called pretty frequently to do funerals for people that don't have pastors. And so this man didn't know the family, but he sat with them and got some information about the lady and all of that. And sadly, she did not live a very good life. 
She was, she was immoral. There's no other way to put it. She was immoral. And he proceeded in that funeral to explain that this lady had knocked the bottom out of hell, lived a wicked life, and got her just desserts. And if you don't get saved, you're going to face the same. <sighs> Nothing he said from what I read was technically untrue, but it was tone deaf. Now, what, the reason it made news was because they met him in the back of the funeral parlor and beat the daylights out of him after the service. That's why it made news. <laughs> hey, folks, there is one lesson we can take from that. Let the Holy Spirit guide you what to say and when to say it. Because sometimes being spirit-filled is not saying the right thing. It's not saying anything. One of my life verses. The fool uttereth all his mind, but a wise man keepeth it in till afterwards. I've been a fool many times. Many times. It could, here, here's what it comes down to. You remember the, the, the properly, properly appreciate his message. What they said displayed that they had no concept of the message that Jesus was conveying. They had no concept they could not appreciate what Jesus was saying. And that happens to a lot of Christians. We're saved, we're on our way to heaven, we love the Lord, but we just don't really appreciate the message of Christ. Ephesus had that problem. Man, they were doctrinally sound, they were straight as an arrow, and yet they missed the whole thing about love. Now, some churches go the other way. They're all about love, but they got no doctrine whatsoever. And they miss the message. If we're going to be effective ministers of Christ, a fundamental is we got to pay attention to the master and we have to properly appreciate his message. Number three, it's some Wednesday night, isn't it? You got to pay attention to the master. You got to properly appreciate his message. And then you have to purpose in your heart, to appropriate his mindset. Or you could say adopt his mindset. Okay? You got a, you got a purpose that with God's help, I'm going to adopt, I'm going to appropriate the way Jesus thinks. Verse number 41. When the ten heard it, they began to be much displeased with James and John. Now, don't think they're displeased because... James and John, that's the wrong thing to say, fellas. No, they're mad because they beat them to it. They're mad because they were thinking the same thing. They were indignant because this displayed their own ambitions. And if anybody's mad, it's Peter. Hold on a second, fellas. I'm part of this inner circle too. But I know why y'all are doing this, because you're his cousins. That's why. And by the way, I do think they were cousins. But that's not, that's not near there, there. But Jesus called them to him, verse 42, and saith unto them, Ye know that they which are accounted to rule over the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and their great ones exercise authority upon them. But so shall it not be among you. But whosoever will be great among you shall be your minister. And whosoever you will be the chiefest shall be servant of all. 
See, the Gentiles, and particularly the Romans, when, when they want to exercise lordship, they just remind you they're the boss, applesauce. And you're going to do what I say because I'm in charge. And that's the man's mindset of, law, of lordship. I'm in control. You do what I say because I'm in charge. Jesus says, that's not my way. You want to be the greatest? Be the least. You want to stand tall? Get on your knees. You want to lead? Serve. That's one of the toughest things for me to deal with. I, I, I just confess to you it is. I grew up in a culture that the pastor was the closest thing to a dictator, benevolent or not, that you could think of. I even had one pastor tell me, your people shouldn't know when you're upset. Your people shouldn't know when you're, when you're weak. Your people shouldn't know when you're not feeling well. They need to see the same man Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, a marble icon of the faith. Now, I admit, I don't necessarily need to tell you every time I'm mad about something or upset about something or hurting about something. That, I agree with that. But you know what I've learned about this marble icon thing? You can't keep that up. And you know what marble eventually does? It crumbles. Jesus said that stuff written on stone is not nearly as good as stuff written on flesh. And so, you know, for 16 years, almost 17, no, almost 16, no, almost 17, I'll do the math later. It's a constant struggle between properly protecting the scriptural authority of the pastor and not being run over, and not that that happens here much, but you know, and being a servant. Because every once in a blue moon, you got to square your shoulders back and tell somebody no. It does happen. And people do look to you to lead. But far and away, the, the better thing for anybody in any kind of leadership is to be a servant. And if Jesus could do it, certainly I should. And certainly you should. I tire very quickly of these men that mistreat their wives for the sake of their status as head of their home. That's not scriptural. Men ought to be servants. Jesus, uh, Paul told us that we're to love our wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. And that doesn't mean that every once in a while I don't have to put crystal in line. It does happen from time to time. <laughs> but if it was easy and if it was fleshly, we'd do it all the time, wouldn't we? But it's not. It goes against what we want to do. It goes against our flesh. Our flesh doesn't want to serve. Our flesh doesn't want to minister to people. Our flesh doesn't want to be submissive. Our flesh doesn't want to do that. Our flesh doesn't want to get low. It wants to stay high. It wants to stay prominent. It wants to. But what would happen if everybody just in this room, not our whole church membership, what would happen if everybody in this room just purposed by God's grace that we're going to take the mindset of Christ and we're going to be servants to each other? 
<laughs> even that guy? Especially that guy. I can't tell you how many times I've, I've handled situations like that wrong and the Holy Spirit whispers in my ear. Do you know what he says? And just who do you think you are? pastor of the largest independent Baptist church in Whiffle. That's who I am. Whoop-de-doo. Who gave you that opportunity and who can take it away just as quickly? I think right now we're reaping the fruits of a whole generation of pastors that miss that. I think there's people that are now adults with families of their own that won't darken the door of a church because of a whole bunch of pastors out there that stop being servants. Whew, got quiet in here. Man. And by the way, if the pastors to be a servant and the deacons are to be servants and the trustees are to be servants and the Sunday school teachers are to be servants and the musicians are to be servants and the choir members are to be servants and every person who names the names of Christ is going to be a servant and I got an idea, if somebody walks into a church where everybody's a servant, they won't want to leave. We've got a purpose to appropriate his mindset. Jesus presents a model that is completely opposite of everything that was demonstrated by those around them. It displays his mindset, which is singularly described as humility. Look at what he says in verse 45. For even the Son of Man, his favorite title for himself, was not Son of God, it was Son of Man. He used it more than any other title. I think it was like 81 times. I mean, if I'm him, I'm going to make sure you know I'm son of God. I'm the Messiah. I'm the Christ. What was his favorite title? Son of man. For even the son of man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister, to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Let me tell you what kind of servant we're talking about. We're talking about the servant that washes the feet of the man that's about to betray him. We're talking about the servant that cries out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do as they nail him to that cross. We're talking about the servant that looks at me who has offended him and come up short with him over and over and over and over and says, I forgive you all is well. Go to Philippians chapter 2 and we're done. Let's see this mindset. Philippians chapter 2. Verse number 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, Thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. 
For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. If you're going to be a minister for Christ, you've got to pay attention to the Master. You've got to properly appreciate his message. And you've got a purpose to appropriate his mindset. Because these are the fundamentals of ministry. Next week, Lord willing, we go to the healing of a blind man. And I think old Bartimaeus already, already had some strikes against him. Just to whet your appetite, my understanding of him is that he had a prideful father. Why would I say that? Because it says Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus. Do you know what Bartimaeus means? Son of Timaeus. Blessed art thou, Simon Bar-Jonah, son of Jonah. Bartimaeus means son of Timaeus. His dad named him son of Timaeus. This, this is my son, Bartimaeus, Bartimaeus. That's a dad's kind of stuck on himself, isn't it? That's like me saying, that's my son, son of Andy Davis. You don't even get your own name. Just mine. So Bartimaeus already had some strikes against him. And he was blind. Does that whet your appetite at all? Maybe. I don't know. We'll see. I should have just quit with my last point. (laughs) Sometimes the Holy Spirit doesn't speak loudly enough when it comes to me trying to be funny. I think he gives me what I ask for and leaves me in leanness unto my soul.